I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I, do you want to say something about how you're feeling today? First. Just briefly, yeah. I don't want to make, make yeah. a meal of this, but the um, tower block that burned down today is at the, the end of my road. And so as I walked to work, I saw, I didn't know this happened, the helicopters woke us up at two o'clock in the morning. As I walked to work, there it was. And walking towards me were lots of people kind of sobbing and so on. And so it's been very present. It's not therefore that, you know, I can't do the event or anything, but I just think it has to be sort of acknowledged not that we should all sit here and think about it, but it is a factor in my mind today because it was so immediate. So I just want to say that. And presumably in everybody's minds today, somehow it's, 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 yeah, go- it's ongoing. So um, it always feels strange to do events when major events are happening at yeah. the same time. Yeah. But I'm so delighted uh, to be here uh, uh, and to have the opportunity to uh, talk to... Uh, somebody I've been reading for a, a very, very uh, long time and uh, who continually uh, provokes and inspires me to, to, to choose two words that are of interest and importance in this book that we're going to talk about tonight, which is another extraordinary book. And what I'm not going to tell you, uh, I don't think, is what it's about, because it says inside this book that Freud wants to persuade us, and I believe Adam Phillips also wants to persuade us, uh, that the acknowledgement that we don't know what we're talking about is the precondition for talking, which puts me, I think, in an invidious situation because I've prepared for this uh, conversation, but I'm uh, going to attempt not to use my notes. Uh, I probably will uh, use uh, my notes. Now, I... one thing that, I mean, this, this book uh, touches on many themes, but one of the main themes is in the title, and this is writing. And the book sets itself up in the beginning as, uh, an, in some sense, an inquiry into the, the strange appeal writing seems to have for certain people. And writing is described in the book at a certain point as an amazing pleasure. And... Uh, it's something that uh, uh, you do, you set aside one day a week, today was the day, Wednesday, uh, uh, in order to uh, write. And, uh, and yet, you also say that were you not a psychoanalyst, you wouldn't want to call yourself a writer. Uh, and I had the impression uh, that that was because you think calling yourself a writer might, in some sense, damage the process of writing, or that... Writing is the mystery here. What enables it? What disables it? Yeah, that's definitely right. The other bit is inevitably kind of autobiographical in the sense that, and of course, in retrospect, it sounds disingenuous, but it feels as though it's true, which is I never had any desire to be a writer. I really wanted to be a reader, and then I really wanted to be a child psychotherapist. And so... And again, I wasn't one of these children who was always writing stories and reading books and so on at all. I started reading books when I was about 15 or 16. Up until then, as a child, I wasn't interested in books at all, really. So it came to me late. And then it really took, and it took an experience I imagine quite a lot of people have had, which was that I had a very inspiring English teacher. And so then it was as I was converted to what was then called English literature. 
and it just totally and absolutely engaged me and absorbed me. And so then I really wanted to read these, bo these books. Then I became a child psychotherapist, and I really wanted to do that as a job. And I went on reading, of course. Then, and I'd written, as we all have, essays at school and so on and so forth. And then, again, in a sense by chance, I was invited to contribute to a French psychonic magazine, which was then a very um, interesting French <coughs> magazine because I didn't read French or indeed speak French. And it was put to me, could I write a short piece for the Nouvelle Revue de Psychanalyse? And it was put to me at sort of five o'clock in the afternoon. I went home and I wrote a piece on tickling. I literally sat down and wrote it. And it was thrilling to me. The, the fact of having done it. And it came out of that previous morning, I'd seen a child and her mother, and the child was tickling the mother's neck a lot during this session. Now, these were just coincidental things. But out of the demand, or the request for a piece, and this experience, there was two and a half pages. And I really, I thought this was fabulous. It was like discovering writing, in a way. And after that, it sort of never stopped. And I can't really, it's silly this, of course I am a writer, but I can't call myself a writer partly because my primary identification and commitment is to seeing, is to practicing psychoanalysis. That matters to me more because I don't have to choose, I can do both. But I wouldn't, I don't want to get my priorities wrong. So to call yourself a writer would be to get your priorities wrong? Yeah, it would put the emphasis in the wrong place, even though... I really do love writing, and now I can't imagine not doing it. But pr prior to that, I couldn't imagine doing it. You, you describe your writing process as a bit like automatic mm. writing, where the, wherever the muse takes you. Has it always been like that? T totally. I think the reason I do it is because it's easy, uh -huh. if you see what I mean, because I like doing it. Because I wouldn't, I think I'd say in the Paris interview, I mean, I really wouldn't know how to work at it. I wouldn't know what to do to try and write better. It's not that I think it's fabulous, the writing. I just think it's the only way I can write. And what is striking at the process of doing it is the ease with which I can do it and that I genuinely d discover things. And I don't mean it's an endless cornucopia of amazing insights or anything like that. But, but in the writing of it, things do occur to me. It's like, uh, it's like a drama of thinking as opposed to just thinking. And one word leads to another. And that seems to me, so far, to be just endlessly interesting. And, of course, if it happens to be true that other people are interested in it as well, there is a kind of momentum to it, because you feel you're doing something for the group, the group of people who are interested in it. You, you also say in that interview that, that uh, you... I think it's in that interview that you... Sometimes you write something down and you don't know what you think of it or whether you agree with it. But if it interests you sufficiently, you leave it on uh, the page, uh, which shares some resonances with what, you're, what you have to say about other writers that you, mm. that you respond to. And, mm. and have you read this book lately, the one, this one? Uh, no. No, no. Uh, so you don't know if there... Do you know if there are any passages in it that are enigmatic to you, that are unintelligible to I, you? Um, when I read... When I do read my own books, which I do occasionally... They, it's not that they feel like they're written by somebody else, but they occasionally have a bit of an echo of that, mm. in the sense that the books seem to me much more interesting than I am, to me, <laughs> if you see what I mean. And when I read the books, I'm struck there are interesting thoughts in them very often, interesting sentences. And that pleases me, obviously. It delights me if that's the case. But that's like the experience of writing it, in a way. Mm. And so it is, very quickly, like... I can then sort of see what I'm doing or get some sense of what I'm doing. For example, this book is discrete lectures, uh, the presentations that you gave in various different, mm. uh, uh, at always at invitation, mm. uh, uh, in, in various mm. different settings. Uh, but they've come together into, uh, many of your books are like this, they've come together mm. with no uh, thesis or sort of yeah. sense of coherence, and yet they speak to each other in these very... Uh, conspicuous and uh, uh, evocative ways. And I'm very fascinated uh, uh, by this process that you're, that you're provoked into writing about some, th some books and what, what, what is it that, uh, what is it that engages you? What, do, you, do, you do you know at, at a point? I do, well, I don't really know, but I do know that, just like I know the people I really like, I know the writing I really like. Mm. 
so that I only agree to give a lecture on either a writer that I already know and love and I'm interested in, or because I'm curious about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm really interested in all this is what Freud calls dream work, mm-hmm. in the sense of I'm interested in, in unconscious perception, that one really doesn't know at all entirely what one's interested in. But in the, but in the process of writing, you might find out. I mean, the, th- the beginning of your previous question, you might talk about the thing about leaving things in when I mm-hmm. write. Well, in a way, that's that's the model for it, in a way, which is that I don't leave things in that strike me as either obviously spurious or false, and I haven't got a conscious intention to mislead people. But I often write something, and I presume anybody who writes has the experience, and you're really not sure whether this is very good or very bad, or very pretentious or very interesting, or you know, etc. And at that point, I think of the writing as communal, as in, I hand it over to anybody who wants to read it, mm-hmm. and then I presume they will tell me, and they'll either... Well, if they're friends of mine, they obviously won't mock me. But mm-hmm. in the larger world, they might. But it's as though it'll be fed back. Well, it's the same with a commission to write something. I feel like my first assumption is that if somebody asks me to write something, it's because they've seen something in me that I may not have seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you've read my books, you'll know I'm into Nemesis. So if you ask me to give a lecture on Nemesis, I'll probably do that. Mm-hmm. But very often, they're surprising, like mm-hmm. the Sabled one, for example. Mm-hmm. The Svevo one yeah. was. Um, and I just, my first assumption is maybe somebody knows something about me that I don't, because obviously other people know much more about you than you do about yourself. Yeah. And, and that makes me curious. But something's got to make it feel worth doing. But I know when my heart isn't in it. Mm-hmm. And it just I know when I can't write, I could not possibly try and do it. Uh-huh. So it's not like if I make an effort or if I get over the resistance. Yeah. It's not a must-try-harder. It's much more a sort of it either works or it doesn't. One of the questions that this book uh, is interested in is uh, the degree to which writers, creative writers, poets in particular, are suspicious of what you do, are suspicious of psychoanalysis, and uh, very often protest against it, feel that it might invade them in some way or hurt them uh, in some way. I imagine, therefore, that, that, some, that when writers come to you, uh, that this is an issue that you have to deal with is, is this an issue you have to do with a, a, a sort of re- reassuring them that you're not going to destroy them or that yes. you might? No, I think, well, I think that there's a kind of traditional fantasy that psychoanalysis could sabotage inspiration or that my insp- or more simple-mindedly, my inspiration comes from my suffering. So obviously if my suffering is diminished, I will lose my... Well, I really think there's no need to worry about that. Um, at any level, really. I mean, I think everybody wants to try and locate what it is that sabotages their inspiration. Now, that's a very good thing to do. It's also very useful to locate it in your analyst, because then you can talk about it. So if somebody comes along with the suspicion that I and or it are going to spoil their capacity to create, then that seems to me potentially a promising starting point. Because it does mean they've located a part of themselves that may well sabotage their capacity to create. Mm-hmm. And they've now lodged it in me. And mm. then we can start from there. Uh-huh. So that um, I've got confidence in. It de- of course, it depends. I don't believe that there's a necessary connection between suffering and creativity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can all, everybody in this room can make links between these things. But I don't think a precondition of making wonderful, interesting, useful things is suffering. Or, to put it the other way around, everybody's suffering anyway. So how could we tell? Mm-hmm. If you assume I don't, they're only suffering, but they're also suffering because just to be a person means is traumatic. The degree to which uh, poetry and psychoanalysis uh, are at odds with each other or, or in, some, in some sense uh, not bedfellows uh, is something that is mirrored throughout, throughout the book where, where we have these sort of competitions between yeah. discourses uh, that seem to... Uh, t- so, 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 the, so you point out that psychoanalysis never minds getting in bed with poetry, but poetry doesn't like uh, to have uh, psychoanalysis uh, associated with it. Uh, Freud and a few other writers you mentioned didn't like biography, seemed to think biography uh, w- would would do it do its own reputation damage if it got 
too close, but biography mightn't mind so much to have that relationship. And then there's religion and psychoanalysis, and, and uh, everybody's uh, somehow uh, worried about what the other uh, discourse is uh, doing to them or, or for them. And I, I suppose interested in the moment when you say you read psychoanalysis as poetry. What was um, baffling to me when I went from studying literature university to training to be a psychoanalyst was the fact that obviously I'd read all these great modernist poets, many of whom were very, very anti-Freudian. And so I was reading psychoanalysis. It seemed to me psychoanalysis was part of the same cultural conversation as poets and historians and theologians. So there was a sort of potential collaboration here. But actually, there was a, a very, very determined antagonism created. And that seemed to me to be interesting, just that why did it mobilize so much antipathy? Because you could think, if you don't like something, you can just be indifferent about it, you can forget about it. You need to make a meal discrediting it. Um, you could read other books. So that seemed to me to be a shame and also genuinely puzzling, which is what was... And the trouble, of course, is you can, I can only formulate this in psychotic terms. So what did psychoanalysis represent to Eliot or Pound such that they needed to discredit it or disown it? Because you would have thought, and I give examples in the book, that reading Freud could be quite interesting. You don't have to believe the whole thing. You don't have to believe any of it. But he's an interesting writer. But actually, they are quite determinedly dissuading us from reading this at all. So it's going to kind of poison you in some sense. Now, of course, it may be partly anti-Semitism, but it also could be my guess is, and I'm sure there are lots of answers to this, but there is a fear of being dominated by somebody else's vocabulary. And what I think people were witnessing was that people for whom psychoanalysis took, it really took, so that people didn't think, well, it's quite interesting. They either thought this was the key and the answer to life, or they thought it was a load of old rubbish. It was like ice cream, you either loved it or you hated it. And I think that there's a genuine fear that if you take psychoanalysis on board, a, you don't know what else you're taking on board, and B, you're effectively being dominated by another man, to put it as simply as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, by the time you get to post-Freud, you could be dominated by another woman. Mm -hmm. But I think that Freud becomes the precursor that's got to be radically disparaged. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in, in post-Second World War literary criticism, of course, Freud is circulated with romantic poetry mm -hmm. by American critics. Mm -hmm. So those links are being made, but, or and... It is more or less true that there's some psychoanalysis represents something <coughs> that lots of people don't want. Mm -hmm. Now they're not just resisting it. You know, lots of people are right; they don't want it. But the but I, I, the bit that interests me is why you would need to devote your life, so to speak, to discrediting it. Mm -hmm. Why you couldn't just leave it alone? And actually, that, that I, the notion of credit or belief, where, uh, which uh, seems to me to be one of the threads. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the most interesting for me uh, uh, threads throughout this book. It, it's something you set up early on, this possibility that, that, that the values in which we go about uh, leading our lives and having our conversations with each other, do we agree or disagree with each other, do we believe or disbelieve uh, each, each other, might be getting us nowhere or, or might be keeping us in a place that's a bit dull. And what transpires between people if they don't need to agree yeah. with each other and they don't need to believe in each other or be believed uh, by each other. That's something you, you say you're interested in. I, I would love to know what you think that intercourse is or what, what, what does take place. In well, Winnicott said a long time ago famously, madness is the need to be believed. And it's an interesting comment. I think there's a way in psychoanalytic language and not only in psychoanalytic language, to see that people are having a bodily effect on each other that's way in excess of their capacity to represent it. And I think that it's easy to get hypnotised by agreement and disagreement and persuasion when so much more is going on between people. And I think it's very, in some ways, it assuages anxiety to think we're involved in a debate or even <laughs> in a conversation, whereas I think we're involved in something else or mm -hmm. something else as well. And that's why I think Freud's idea of dream work is so compelling. Because Freud is saying that we are unconsciously perceiving and taking in and being moved by things we are totally unaware of. So by osmosis, by influence, by atmosphere, by all sorts of things, we are much more receptive 
than we either can let ourselves acknowledge or want to acknowledge. And that in some ways, that's more or as interesting than the persuasion game mm -hmm. or the we must all agree or we all disagree or the antagonism. Because it seems to me it would be interesting to have a different model of what can go on between people that isn't either agreement or disagreement or are you believing what I'm saying or not believing what I'm saying. This seems to me to be very, very limited. And, and also it's very, very hard to know what people are actually doing when they claim to be believing each other or not believing each other. It can sound like word magic. So I think what I'm interested in is the unconscious effect people have on each other and how it comes out in the wash. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I find the idea so exciting. Uh, 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 I, I think because I feel so exhausted by my yeah. by, by these uh, the ways in which I operate in those terms the whole time, desperately wanting people to believe me and uh, sending them articles to prove my point and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, so on and. Um, terrified by the thought that someone doesn't agree with me uh, it seems dangerous uh, somehow to me and and so uh, so I find that very suggestive but it is also one of the other possibilities you bring up in the book as to why people might be wary of yeah. psychoanalysis not necessarily that they're dominated by another man or woman but that it might turn out that when they think they're talking to someone else they're only really talking about themselves I mean the, this that yes. somehow you're left in a slightly solipsistic space, potentially. Yes, or they don't know who they're talking to or quite, you know, from where they're talking. Because yeah. one of the really interesting things about practicing psychoanalysis or being in it is that, of course, it's not, it doesn't have to be about agreement or disagreement. It doesn't have to be about believing or a state of conviction. It's much more about, at least the psychoanalysis that I value, it's much more about a certain kind of um, fluidity in a certain way. It's much more about people being able to be in their own delirium with each other and for there to be um, interactions that may be unperceived, something like that. And, <laughs> be in their own delirium with each other is uh, a nice way of putting it. And also because you, um, one of the most extraordinary ideas also that I noticed in this book, you, uh, you make, a, there is a par there are lots of parallels you draw out between psychoanalysis and literature. That's one of them, that neither of these spaces uh, require us, you don't read a, a poem in order to agree with it yeah. or, 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 or to believe it. And ideally, in, in, in the terms you're describing, psychoanalysis is, is the same thing. You're not there, uh, you, you, you finally discover, to have agreement or, 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 uh, or so on. You say at one point that the, your analyst is someone in your life who, who isn't representing a viewpoint or... Who doesn't or, talk on your behalf. Who doesn't talk on your behalf, yeah. right. So you make those uh, analogies and you, you suggest that these are two discourses that would fail by their own standards uh, if they tried to persuade you that they were good for you. That somehow, or that they know what's good for you. Uh, that, that somehow, therefore, they're, they're two discourses that can't afford to defend themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or if they defend themselves, they dig their own grave in yeah. the doing of it. There's a very interesting moment in an interview with John Ashbury where the person says to Ashbury, why is your poetry so difficult? Mm. And Ashbury says, I noticed that when you talk to other people, eventually they lose interest. When you talk to yourself, people want to listen in. <laughs> and that, in a way... Uh -huh. I don't mean that was made possible by the fact he was in psychoanalysis, <laughs> but, I, but I bet it helped, yeah. as in... It seems to me it's a very different um, picture which says this is really not about the intention to communicate. Mm -hmm. That's a complete decoy here. Something else is going on. And the intention to communicate or the intention to be understood, all that stuff, could be the vehicle for other things. Mm -hmm. In one version of psychoanalysis, the story is we go there to be understood. Mm -hmm. But there'd be, of course, another story about psychoanalysis which would say that would, exactly, that would be exactly the problem because that would reinforce the idea that understanding is the point or the aim. Mm -hmm. Whereas A, you don't know what the aim is, and B, you might have a very, very, um, for want of a better word, fetishized view of what understanding actually entails. Mm -hmm. I, for me, the, I mean, there's a, the thought that I might, after reading this book, I doubt it will happen, but the thought that I might, I'm talking to myself, <laughs> that I might uh, cease to defend things uh, so much, be, uh, be less defensive, uh, is a very tantalizing idea. But there is uh, a claim that's made later in the book where you say that uh, 
you're very attracted to the 19th century essayist. People often uh, uh, comment uh, that you're a great es essayist today, and that one of the things you think characterizes them are, are that they're basically people with very strong views who are trying not to be fanatical. And uh, I feel uh, uh, that in your writing, uh, the, uh, the, uh, someone with very strong views trying not to be fanatical. So I, I guess it begs the question, what is it that you're secretly wanting people to believe in you or about you? What is it that uh, I mean, secretly, you're trying not to be secretly defensive Secretly is a about? tricky word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. Maybe I'll ask this question or not. I had, had a friend who owned a local bookshop, and a nun went into the bookshop, and on the table, Mary had a copy of One Kiss, Kissing, Tickling, Being Bored, which was an early book I read. And the nun pointed the book and said to Mary, who owned the bookshop, that's my favorite book. So Mary said, oh, God, great, you know, I know the author, that sort of conversation. And um, the nun said that she'd been working in Bosnia and that she carried the book wherever she went. And obviously Mary was amazed and impressed by this. And, um, and Mary said, what do you, did you think of the book? And she said, oh, I haven't read the book, but, but I love the um, title. <laughs> and the title has really kept me going. Now, what I want is that kind of response. In other words, I want somebody to respond unpredictably in a way that I couldn't have calculated, but in a way that gives me pleasure. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like the thing Hal Bloom says, you, know, you, go, you write all these books, you go to your friends' houses, and they never mark the bits you think are good. Mm -hmm. But you could think, that's the point. There are other people in the world. Uh -huh. So I want, to f I want to meet some other people. Uh -huh. oh. That's the point. Okay. I don't, I, think, I mean, I'm an, no. I don't think I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm not the person. I'm not sure you can meet one No, there. but obviously I meet other people, other people in, a, in an acceptable form. Okay, so. yeah. Don't, don't um, get the wrong idea. No. I'm not interested in otherness. Okay. ghastly uh, like that. Oh, uh, really? No. no, 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 no. Go on. Um... Well, you do say that, that, I think it's in your, I mean, I, in some ways I feel the, uh, the Emerson chapter uh, is the beating heart of, uh, yeah. of, um, yeah. uh, of, of the book. And it's, it's interesting in lots of ways because I think what you think Favour does to Freud, you do to Emerson. And, and, and so there's lots of interesting parallels there. But I think it's in that chapter that you say that writing quotable lines, writing quotable sentences... Is, is to make something that will be recontextualized mm. and taken out of its context, and therefore it will have an untellable future. Mm. That your uh, uh, sentence, and it, which I think, you know, the, the notion that a title that you wrote <laughs> uh, becomes of use to a nun in Bosnia is an extraordinary yeah. anecdote yeah. about that. You say that your, uh, uh, your experience of reading and writing is an amazing pleasure, but being read seems to me to hold tremendous terrors that, that you're... I mean, is being read on the whole in your experience an amazing pleasure as well? I think it's made a terror if one fears being misunderstood. If you can allow people to make whatever they want of your books, but of course we can't allow people to make anything of our books. I mean, somebody picked up one of my books and said, you know, this is the greatest defence of anti-Semitism I've ever read, <laughs> I'd be cross. <laughs> but, but, but of course we have to factor in that because people are going to be hopefully coming to one's books with their own histories now presumably never before in history have there been so many histories brought to bear on any cultural artifact and that's extraordinary because it's very potentially very unpredictable and so what I would like and I think probably we might all like this I'd like to live in a world in which there was no um, intimidation so we would start from the principle that everybody is equally naive but differently knowledgeable. So we wouldn't worry then about being mocked. So we could then say whatever it is we want to say, and we could see how people responded without being in a state of terror. Now, that's my ideal community, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would want, and that's another reason why psychoanalysis interests me, because it is about the possibility of, of working out what the effects are on oneself and other people of speaking freely. Or what that might actually look like. Certainly, we've got no idea what it looks like. But it's a very amazing idea mm -hmm. as a sort of romance. Um, and so I first of all want to get a group of people who have no interest in um, humiliating me. 
I then want to make a world in which there's no intimidation at all, and then I want to see what happens. That's my wish. I have, yeah, I have heard you described as the least tyrannical person <laughs> that person uh, uh, knows. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I think that person knows you in a different way, but, but the, I think their experience of you is obviously of somebody who, um, who stops before the moment when, when uh, some kind of intimidation might, I mean, I, I think, I mean, because it is clear that there is, there is some very, there are some temptations here to defend things. I think yeah. in the, in, in the it's soul of uh, uh, Man Under Psychoanalysis, the T.S. Eliot chapter, you know, there is a defense of uh, yeah. psychoanalysis over and against yeah. uh, religion. Sometimes the defense does uh, appear. Do I have a question? I've got an answer. Oh, you've got an answer. Brilliant. Good. <laughs> when I was growing up, I was, there were teachers I was frightened of and therefore could learn nothing from, and teachers I liked who I could learn something from. So it was my experience that being frightened did not bring out the best in me. So I would then generalize that and say, I don't think it brings out the best in most people. Or if it does, it's because they're already traumatized, would be my presupposition here. So I think it's very interesting to know what can happen if you stop at the point at which you begin to want to impose yourself on somebody else, mm -hmm. or you stop at the point at which you need to be agreed with. Because clearly that's the moment of anxiety. Mm -hmm. The moment in which we want someone to agree with us is the moment in which something else is happening, or mm -hmm. could happen, that's being foreclosed by agreement. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that we could value consensus in certain realms without needing it all the time to be the dominant principle. And it wouldn't be merely that you know, we can agree to different all that sort of stuff, but we could actually say more interesting things to each other if there was no pressure to believe or be believed. Mm -hmm. It's that way around, I think, for me. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, you do a wonderful, very short essay on Hamlet, on, 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 on revenge, and, and on the idea that before taking revenge, there are these questions of why we're postponing the revenge and what else we might take other than revenge, which is this idea, because you, you say there too, that somehow this mode of defending your values in the form of re revenge clearly suggests at the same time that if you're defending them in this way, perhaps you don't hold them in, yeah. in the way you don't believe in them. You don't believe what you think you believe necessarily. So it, it gave me an impression of people coming to you as Hamlets, uh, as, as, of, of the sort of psychoanalytic patient as a kind of Hamlet, try exploring possibilities, uh, uh, but postponing what they think they're about to do. So it takes some sort of... Uh, mm. is, is that a description of... Yes, I mean, I think that revenge interests me uh, in the essay because it's a magical act. It's as though... When you're moved to take revenge, you know exactly what's happened to you, you know exactly what you should do, whereas both things can't be true. I mean, neither of those things can really be true. So it seems to be like a magical act of comprehension and a magical decision at the same time. And it doesn't then give you space to be able to have, as it were, the full range of your thoughts and feelings about what is actually happening to you. Psychoanalysis provides the space, potentially, for that. So it enables you to find out what it is you might be feeling about any person, thing, etc. in your life, but also to, the reason, that, this is a completely different point, but the reason I think that you need to have psychoanalysis and American pragmatism together is because you need to have dream work and you need to have instrumental reason. In other words, the thing that interests me about pragmatism is it believes in experiments in living and it believes in, William James believes in, consequentialism. So you evaluate thoughts, feelings, acts by their consequences. And of course, consequences have an infinite temporality. It could be the consequence in five minutes and in five years. But the consequence is more interesting than the origin. Mm -hmm. And then psychoanalysis will say that actually what matters are causes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...and intentions and so on and so forth. If you put two together, you've got a much more interestingly complicated picture. The pragmatist doesn't have an unconscious because it's as though the pragmatist knows what he or she wants. Mm -hmm. The only question is how to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, if you put that together with Freud saying, actually, when we think we know what we want, it's really because we're frightened of discovering what it is we do want. Mm -hmm. Then you have a very interesting combination of ways of living. And, and absolutely, and both those are, are, are in this book. Yeah. In, in, and I've, I felt that, mm. that, that, that uh, why they were sort of in different essays and, and, why, and why they both needed uh, to be there. The, the Emerson essay, I, I suppose, would be the American pragmatist, yeah. the forward-looking, yeah. uh, the description of uh, Emerson uh, as a writer who thinks of writing as a way of, inventing the future or possibilizing, uh, 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 making the impossible possible the whole time, never repeating uh, mm -hmm. and so on. And it's an extraordinary, it's actually such an extraordinary essay in which uh, the notion of uh, style, uh, of, of style becomes the key, pri the prized thing, mm -hmm. wanting, wanting uh, to, ha to uh, liberate each person's style. Mm -hmm. uh, but Style is in itself something that needs to shift and change all the time. It would never be the same thing twice. And you say, I think, at one point that style is what we must resist our resistance to, mm. our style, mm. uh, uh, which might be worth... Well, I think, I think what I may have meant then is that, uh, you know, Emerson says, imitation is suicide. Fantastic thing to say. The risk of having a style is that you then become imprisoned in your style. It's a bit like you know, finding your voice. Well, you find your voice, and then what do you do? Well, Emerson, I think, is, is onto that. He's onto the wish to foreclose, or the wish to take refuge in the solution rather than being more interested in the problem. Mm -hmm. And so he wants a style that goes on changing. Of course, you can't go on changing all the time, except that, of course, we are actually changing all the time. So when people say nothing ever changes, or they have that experience, it's a problem of perception, not a problem of being. Because actually, at a cellular level, we are changing every minute. So what Emerson, I think, is trying to do is to put together two things, which is, he doesn't think of it like this because he doesn't know about modern biology, but he's trying to put together the fact that everything is changing all the time with a kind of aesthetic that keeps saying, we need to fix things. The great thing about art, the great thing about culture is it monumentalizes. It stops time. It enables us to reflect on time. What Emerson is saying, no, what we need are styles, effectively, which can be continually rejuvenated, within which we can continually improvise to keep up with the change that's going on anyway. And is there, a, I mean, was I wrong? Or is it a possible extrapolation from that idea that you're reading in Emerson to, to see that... I mean, I mean, there was a time when one spoke constantly about finding one's voice, oh, and and oh. and uh, and this person has yet to find their yeah, voice, oh. and 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 that person has discovered their voice, and and mm -hmm. and so on. But is there a way in which you see your practice as helping people discover their voice, uh, sort of catching on to their style in some way? In a way, but I think the thing is, you're doing different things with different people. Uh, one of the things I want to do is to find out what they might want from coming to the from psychoanalysis itself. I also think it's worth finding out what any individual person thinks it would be for someone to be kind to them. So for me, the aims are to do with sociability, fundamentally. They're to do with um, understanding what stops people enjoying each other's company. That's one bit. But obviously those are my aims. Mm -hmm. And then the other bit is their aims. Mm -hmm. And then we see what happens between us. But of course it doesn't go on at that level of debate. 
It mm. partly goes on, but also something else goes on. And I, I picture this as we are unconsciously metabolizing each other, mm-hmm. not just our words, but whatever our presence is. Mm. Um, but, or and, I think there are unconscious affinities between people. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, there are reasons why people come to certain people and stay with certain people, mm-hmm. and indeed leave certain people. Um, but I think it's, it, in an Emersonian sense, it has to be l- largely unknowable. Mm-hmm. All I know is that if I am moved by the person, I know it'll be easy for me to listen to them. So I can promise that I'll listen to them, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But it's an anti-commodity. You know, mm-hmm. if you buy a car, you know what you should expect. If you buy an analysis, you really cannot know. Mm-hmm. And anybody who tells you you can know is lying to you, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a known end, but it does have a very interesting means. Mm-hmm. So, so the, uh, the question of... I suppose because one of the thing, one of the other very tantalizing ideas I, f- I find in the book is that not only is psychoanalysis not necessarily interested in agreement, disagreement, belief, disbelief, it doesn't even necessarily want you to be right uh, uh, about anything. If, if you could be productively wrong, yeah, exactly. uh, uh, yeah. that, that would be yeah. perfectly uh, uh, legitimate yeah. uh, goal and uh, H. The, H, the relationship between Freud and H.D. is a sort of working on a suitable idealization of him for her <laughs> together seemed quite, uh, uh, quite nice. And, and, and uh, you, you offer that in, um, in your essay on Svevo, that Svevo was uh, 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 sh- showing that despite the fact that psychoanalysis had failed him, uh, he enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it gave him something to write about. And he got, and he got a very good book out of it. <laughs> and he got a very uh, good book about it, which seems to me to be also sort of roughly what, you know, your reading of Emerson is also yeah. suggesting that despite the fact that he fails in his own terms, you're inspired by, yeah. by, yeah. by, by yeah, him. Exactly. Uh, um, oh, what, what was I going to say? Do you have an answer to what I do, I, yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. Um, William James has got a very interesting idea about conversion experiences. Where the <coughs> original American Puritans obviously believed that you had a conversion for life. You couldn't be a sort of serial convertee. William James' idea is that it's not that you need to be converted, but you have to have a capacity for conversion. Mm-hmm. But that capacity con- for conversion in me- involves going on being able to be converted to other things. So it's as though you go on having crushes or crazes or curiosities or interests, but that that's the capacity that's being aimed at. So it's not a capacity to be endlessly sceptical. In some ways, it's the opposite. <coughs> it's the capacity to be endlessly really immersed and engaged, and also for that to um, metamorphose into something else. So, but, the, but in this, the, the abiding project is the capacity to lose yourself, or lose yourself as you know yourself to be. And that seems to me to be, in the best sense, a very ordinary experience, mm-hmm. but one that can be inhibited. So the other thing psychoanalysis can do for you, if it works, is free you to forget yourself. Which the the, the Lear essay yeah. is, is yeah. And the notion of nonsense as yeah. as as a possible way of overcoming traumatic childhood yeah. uh, uh, is is um, I I I realise I'm gesturing towards essays nobody has uh, read and I'm finding it hard to um, describe but there yes there's all kinds of ways in which self forgetting might be achieved through 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 the texts and and, and figures you're looking at I. I want though, to come back to this um, issue of how intimidating you are, and <laughs> even when you, you don't wish to be, because of the dynamics of authority and, and somebody who finds themselves in a, a situation where they're asking for something, and because one can never escape value-laden no, no. Uh, uh, language. And what do you jump to? I mean, what do you jump to when you're trying to escape uh, terms of agreement, disagreement, belief, uh, uh, non-belief, would you say? What, I mean, what language do you think you're supplanting that, those values with? I mean, I have some ideas. But. <laughs> I think for me, anyway, it's to do with anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's to do with how much or what kind of anxiety I can bear mm-hmm. such that I don't have to resolve it through a state of conviction. And it doesn't mean I therefore want to be endlessly open-minded, because obviously I have 
very strong preferences. But I also don't want to get trapped in a preference, mm-hmm. I think. And it's something to do with feeling that, feeling, um, this isn't really the right word, but feeling safe enough to be able to go on thinking about or feeling about things without feeling that the self-cure for this is to know what one thinks. Mm-hmm. But it does mean you take a risk because obviously the benign assumption would be you can more than contain yourself, indeed you can enjoy yourself. Well, it isn't always true. Mm-hmm. You can be very frightened of yourself, very disturbed by yourself. But that's why you need other people. It's all about dependence. Mm-hmm. It's all about becoming as dependent as possible, mm-hmm. trying to be as dependent as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not about becoming independent. It's exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's about becoming much better and better and better at being dependent mm-hmm. because the only resources we've got is each other. Yeah. And that's ultimately the answer you give to T.S. Eliot, uh, who uh, I feel in your reading is uh, trying to preserve the mystery uh, of life during a modern period where knowledge is is but by jumping upwards to the heavens. And uh, you're suggesting uh, that there's more mystery uh, in 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 particularly you make it in 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 sexual relations uh, than in a god god one uh, for me the the value that i again and again encounter when reading you is a kind of pleasure principle uh, as a principle i mean you do go beyond it as you just said but but it's very much it comes back again and again and again that 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 finding things enjoyable is i think in your terms a good thing and interesting is another one yeah. of your uh, favourite. But, but also not allowing yourself to be fobbed off, as in finding what you really enjoy, which isn't obviously necessarily what you are supposed to enjoy or have been encouraged to enjoy. And that's another, I think, good thing that psychoanalysis can do its best, is it can allow you to work out what it is you really enjoy. I mean, Elizabeth Rudnesco said an interesting thing about Lacan, where she, she was asked why so many Jesuit priests went to see Lacan when, obviously, psychoanalysis is, in a certain sense, anti-religious. And she said, the great thing about Lacan was he had a high regard for people's vocation. And that is the same point for me, which is that you have a vocation for the things that matter most to you, that most on things and people, that most engage you and you most enjoy. Mm-hmm. But it's very easy to be, it sounds terrible way of talking, mm-hmm. but to be fobbed off with false pleasures. And... Uh this is linked in your, your, to your idea that, that one thing that psychoanalysis is there to do is to help people recover their appetites. Mm, mm. Uh, could you say more about what that means? Well, just that the difficulty of sustaining an appetite. Um, that appetite dis- is disturbing because obviously it connects us to the world in unpredictable ways. But there's a sense in which we are our appetites and that then becomes a question of what we feel free enough to demand of other people. And that then brings with it, this is all obviously a psychotic story, what then the damage we fear doing, and may indeed do, in the attempt to satisfy what we take to be our needs. So I think what psychoanalysis, the utopian version of psychoanalysis, which is the one I like, is saying something along the lines of, it's amazing how much pleasure we can give each other. It's amazing how much we can satisfy each other. That's why we can so acutely frustrate each other. Otherwise, we just have a completely normal view that, of course, everything is just like that, not very nice. Whereas, actually, we don't believe that. Well, we don't believe that, I think, or whoever this we is, because it's because we've had the experience of ecstasies and pleasures and satisfactions that we are so frustrated because we know it's there. The question is, how do you get it? How do you find it or whatever? And one of the things I think I would want psychoanalysis I value to do is to enable people to have the courage of what they might want from other people, but to experiment with it. In the full knowledge, this is really the most dangerous game in town, but by the same token, the only game in town, in my view. I mean, it makes what you're up to in in that space. I mean, you become the representative of 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 the other people, people coming to you to recover their appetites, discover what they want from other people, and then you become that. Uh, I mean, you're is is that what you're there to do? To be? No, I really like other people. No. <laughs> and. So I don't feel, I mean, obviously they'd have to tell me, because I can't answer mm. big on their behalf, but I don't think of myself 
entirely or mostly persuading people how I think they should live to have a better time. I think of it much more, I mean, that I might do with my friends, and I do a bit of that. But I also, the other thing I'm interested in doing is, is finding out or finding ways of how you find out what for any given person is their preferred way of life. What does really matter to them? And then you take your chances. Interesting. <laughs> what is interesting? Interesting means unavoidably compelling and nourishing. So if I was to make this really crude, I would say with some people one feels depleted and with some people one feels inspired. With some people one feels starved, with some people one feels nourished. So it's really to do with something that gives you an appetite for the future. Relationships, intellectual interest, whatever, stamp collecting, it could be anything. But something, you have to find things and people that precipitate you into a desirable future. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting because that I think the two descriptions you give of who we are, who subjects are in the book that I can recall, seem to respond to both those things. One is that we are what makes us happy uh, and that this is a much better description of us than how we suffer. Uh, and uh, the other one you suggest is we are what we're unable to ignore, and and more than that, what we do with what we're yeah, yes, <laughs> with exactly. what we're uh, unable uh, to ignore, which I guess is enjoyment and interest in in other terms. Uh, what distinction of any do you draw between writing and talking? Well, as I'm sure it is, it's a very big question. <laughs> I think, in a way. One of the advantages of writing is the apparent absence of other people. But of course they are in one's mind, but they're not palpably present. I think I would find it very difficult to write in the presence of another person. Um, I prefer, if I had to choose, and I don't, I prefer talking. Just because there are more, uh, there, it seems to be more possible. I just think, I've, I find other people more interesting than I find myself. There's not a modest comment, you understand, but I do. And so I can only have an interest in other people if there are other people there. And I think talking is just endlessly interesting. I mean, it's riveting mothers talking about their children. Now, the story in the culture is it's the most boring thing on earth. It's the most incredibly interesting thing. Once mothers feel that they're not going to be mocked and treated as boring, because women know things about their children are startling. So I prefer talking. Hello. Um, I've always been struck, and I don't know whether it's a right reading or not, but in your books, when you write a sentence, there always seems to be almost a central dip where you have an idea that goes off on a tangent, and I can almost feel you taking pleasure in that. It's almost like you're stretching your arms. And I wonder whether you're aware of that pattern in writing where it actually has a potential to have a subsidiary argument through these kind of, maybe it's one word or a kind of couched idea, and whether you're aware of that, whether I've picked up on something, whether it's something you approve of in writing, but it's as if you're weaving um, a web of kind of one direction and another direction in your actual writing, which plays out your whole theory of uh, um, not certain ends. Yeah. I mean, that sounds right. The thing about one's writing is that you do depend upon other people to tell you what it's like. Because I can't, I mean, obviously I've got some idea, but I don't really know what it's like. In that description, I can certainly recognize myself, as in, in the process of doing it, things occur to me, and then they go off what you call tangents. Well, I have so little sense of coherent, of coherent argument that they do, often don't feel like tangents to me, they just feel like the next sentence, in a way. But I can see, if you're following an argument through, things go off in different directions. But I always feel like, and again, this sounds disingenuous, and maybe, there are no arguments. I don't mean I'm not having an argument with anybody, but I just think that... Um, Bernard Williams said a very interesting thing, which you may know, which is he said, unimaginative work comes from arguing with the wrong people. Well, in psychoanalysis, the possibility of arguing with the wrong people is infinite. And so I very, very quickly stopped doing that. And once I stopped doing that, then my thoughts were freer. And so I think that what you're describing is what happens when I write, and that's why I like doing it. At the end of that conversation there, you start to talk about uh, the future and future desires we could be having. And in the previous book, you've written about um, uh, the unlived life. If only we could, we'd be happy if we could just let our unlived lives go. But obviously, we're you know, frustrated about 
the, the pleasures we could be having, future passions we could be having, that, that's always going to be in the sort of tension there, isn't it, that unlived life. I'm just wondering, you know, how do we let that go, yet also uh, focus on um, uh, how should we be thinking about future and our uh, future pleasures, if we should be directed towards the future, if, that's, if I'm right in thinking that. Yeah, I think, obviously I'm not a privileged authority on my own books, but I think in missing out... The proposal wasn't give up on your unlived lives, but find different ways of thinking about them. Because obviously one's unlived life is a formulation of a frustration. So there's a lot in that that is potentially of value. But what I think I want to avoid is um, a life that is based on regret, which I take to be bad faith. I realize that's a bit harsh, but that is what I think. So I think that regret and complaint are a total waste of time and their refuges from engaging what's going on. So I think I would want to, if it was possible, avert righteous indignation and avert the fantasy that the world hasn't given me what I deserve, even though the world often doesn't, with a view to having some kind of engagement with the future that is actually um, energising. Because the risk of all the psychic refuges is that they're enervating. You know you're onto a loser when you feel depleted, when it's a black hole, and when also it's endlessly repetitious. So it seems to me any state of mind, and that's true, of course, of a lot of states of mind, that are repetitious in a fixed way, one should be suspicious of. Whenever one's vocabulary is impoverished internally, something's going on. There's an active narrowing of one's mind. So that's my short answer. Hello. Um, I was just wondering if if you are, are pleased when you finish a book and if, if it sort of ends up like you hoped it would or is it somehow disappointing that language can't quite represent how you think? It's never disappointing because I don't think of a language representing what I think. I don't, I don't have the experience thinking there's something I really want to articulate and the question is have I done it? Which obviously a lot of people do. I just, for me, the experience is I've articulated what I've articulated, and I like it or I don't like it. I like finishing books because then they're over. But I'm, I like most the experience of writing them. So when I've finished one, obviously, I want to write another one. But not as in I must write another one, but I just look forward to the time when I can do that. But I like being in it. Is um, psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis sorry, um, a form of close reading? Yes, it's not only that, but I think close reading, in my experience, because I was taught close reading, I have found it very useful. And indeed, for me, there's a kind of straight line from having learnt a version of close reading to being taught how to listen. Is the opposite true? Well, I'm, yes, but again, it's not only that, but it's one of the best things it can do. I mean, it's close listening. And I think that there is a difference. Because I think to be, to be closely listened to is in itself very, very powerful. So there is something called free listening, which in some ways I think is more interesting than free speech because there's more possibility in it. But what that means is you, it's about allowing the effect of other people's words and their physical presence to call up in you whatever it calls up in you. And the question is whether you can bear that repertoire of feelings. There's an example here that occurs to me um, from the work of Martin Amos. No one talks about Martin Amos anymore, perhaps for good reasons, but um, this is a strong example. In his book, Biography, uh, Autobiography Experience, um, he notes an occasion when a uh, literary critic uh, pointed out to him that his novels um, were full of missing women. And this, he then realised, was the cousin, I think, who went missing from his life when they were young, when they were teenagers. And um, alongside that, so that's an example of a critic, as it were, doing some psychoanalysis on Martin. But I think at the same time, he, he, so he makes that point, but he still is in fear of the analysis which is what you've been talking about. I'm interested in, in, in the way in which they're banging heads still. Um, he w doesn't want to go into analysis himself, I think for the fear that in analysis he would talk himself out and therefore he would not, 
his work wouldn't be able to conjure those missing women. Yeah. Um, and presumably he may be right. I mean, it seems to me that uh, it's, it links actually what Devorah was saying earlier, which is that I would never um, promote psychoanalysis. I mean, I can give an account of why I think it's valuable, but I think each person would have to decide. And I would be unwilling, and probably because I don't know him, but I'd be unwilling to describe why Martin Amis might not want to go into analysis in terms of kind of pathologizing him. I would, I prefer to err on the side of he knows what's good for him. I mean, clearly he's written a lot of very interesting books, so he must be doing something right here. I think if you write something, it's a love test to the world. You're both profoundly curious about how the world will respond and dread how the world's going to respond. And so when people come back to you and say, oh, your novels are full of missing women, you could think, hmm, that's really interesting, or you could think, fuck yourself. It's none of your business. <laughs> and both positions seem to me to be fair enough. I'm, I'm wondering as a practitioner, I mean, I don't feel that I do anything scientific in my consultation room, but I'm wondering about, as in all your essays, that sort of constant interplay, the affinity effectively between literature and the art of psychoanalysis and our need as practitioners to be creative, playful, and as you often say, immersed. I think it depends what you like. I mean, I did biology A-level, and I really loved it, and I was just hopeless at science. But most science I come across just doesn't interest me. I mean, I think the brain is the most boring part of the body on Earth. But I don't mean this is a profound comment about brains. It's a comment about me, you see what I mean, that nothing I've read about brains has made me the slightest bit interested in them. And so I just wouldn't bother to read that stuff. I'm sure it's all true. It may well be, but it, it doesn't interest me. So I think this is entirely to do with sensibility. And I don't think in a way we need to worry about whether it's a science or not. I think people who like science should make it into a science. And people who think it's an art should do it that way round, or combine. But I think it's a shame to get caught up in these kind of affiliations, because I don't think they go anywhere. Questions about whether you think uh, writing autobiography is necessarily or inherently narcissistic, um, or not, or, and, and whether you would ever consider writing your own memoirs. And so just, just to add yeah. to that question, uh, I'm kind of having in mind the idea of, say, Marcel Proust writing about his life, well, not, not really about his life, but a kind of life through Marcel, the narrate, fictional narrator, someone like Robert Musio writing about himself as a kind of fictional self, uh, people like Zebaud, Karl Knasgaard, these writers who kind of write side shadows of themselves rather than writing about themselves, provide a kind of different possibility of writing about the self rather than claiming it to be autobiographical. Yeah, and yeah. so this is kind of one way of avoiding the narcissistic question, but I just, my question is about whether you think there's something inherently narcissistic about writing about the self as well as whether you would like I, to Well, I think t- I've got two answers to that. One is I think the question isn't whether it's narcissistic, the question is whether it's a good book. And some forms of narcissism are rather wonderful and some are ghastly. But I don't think we should, A, assume that it's... I'm not saying you are either, but we shouldn't assume it's one thing and it's bad. There are versions of what we call narcissism that seem to me to be terrible, and there are versions that are rather wonderful and exhilarating. I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is whether you can write a good book or not. And you can't decide that. You know, I can't tell you a good joke. I can tell you a joke, you'll tell me whether it's good. I wouldn't be interested in writing a memoir just for the only thing I can write are essays. I couldn't write a novel either. Not because I'm not... I mean, not because I'm not sufficiently interested in myself, or indeed... I'm not sufficiently into autobiographies. Is I just couldn't imagine how you'd write one. It's beyond me. It's like, you know, it would be like me becoming a choreographer. It would be the stuff of which nightmares are made. <laughs> I, was, um, I was reading an interview with um, John Vanville, and he said that children are always sparing adults' blushes by pretending not to know things that they know full well. Um, and uh, that seems to chime against uh, the kind of romantic conception of the child as a kind of mini-philosopher, Blakey figure who's open to the world and endlessly curious. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts about that. Well, I've got lots of thoughts about that, um, but not very much time. Um, I think it's tricky, even though obviously tempting, to generalise about children as it is about adults. Um, it does seem to me that certainly the children that I know are both much, much more attuned to the external world and much less attuned to the external world than adults. And that's one of the very interesting things about them. 
they're really in their own delirium and they're amazingly receptive to what's going on around them. And they know a lot about the adults they're with, even if they can't always articulate it in the way we might want them to. Um, I think the psychoanalytic child is really of a piece with the child of romanticism. You know, I think it's not incidental that British psychoanalysis took here in which there is a history, a traditional history, of an interest in the child from the 18th century onwards. So I think it fitted in very nicely in a way that Freud didn't in some ways. But what's called psychoanalysis object relations fitted very well. And, you know, you could read The Prelude and you could read Winnicott and you'd think you're in a similar world. That's all I can say for the moment. You have one last question? Oh, one last question. Yeah, that's how you do this. Yeah. <laughs> you say one last question, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then that's the last question. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Uh, I get speaking that. of <laughs> blushes, are you interested in blushing? I'm, um, there's a rather good book by someone who might be in your line, Christopher Ritz. Yeah, of course. Keats and Embarrassment. Uh, you've written about tickling and kissing. Are you interested in blushing? I'm really interested in Keats and Embarrassment. Um, because I thought it was a wonderful book, and it came out at a time when those things really worked for me. I'm not particularly interested in blushing, um, but I think any form of involuntary self-expression is compelling. The things that our bodies do that we would prefer they didn't have got to be interesting, if you can bear either the shame and or the embarrassment. But I think shame and embarrassment probably is where at least some of the action is. And that's my last word. Thank you very much. Do I save your blushes or not? What happens? <laughs> I, 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 you try and make me blush. I, I try and make you blush. I try and make you blush. But I would just... Um, I would say I, one of the things I think this book is doing is, is trying not to be mad uh, and uh, uh, trying very hard uh, not to get frantic when psychoanalysis is not believed in. And, uh, and we realize very quickly that... When someone's not being defensive, we do trust them and we, we, we are prepared uh, to listen to them. And I think belief uh, is very uh, uh, interestingly played with. Uh, but there is a moment in the book where a faith is suggested, and I thought I'd end with that, which is this extraordinary essay on Zebald and how there's nothing to say about Zebald. You can only celebrate him. And uh, it's a big problem with Zebald because uh, everything you might say about him, he's already said a big problem with Phillips also uh, uh, but, but uh, and there's a, a really interesting discussion of celebration and of how ambivalent that is uh, in that essay the way in which when we're having a birthday party we're trying to escape the natural history of our own destruction <laughs> trying to suspend time dehistoricize life even as it's uh, being marked uh, and uh, it moves towards this statement of Sebald that, uh, uh, that you say is his expression of faith, and I, would, I, I, I understood it to be yours as well, that we should, uh, uh, for all that celebration is a nice thing to do, we should keep faith with a social band language. Uh, uh, always keep faith with the things we can't say. And uh, I thought uh, uh, that faith was uh, a way of... Uh, celebrating uh, this wonderful book and writer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, Adam. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 